You are listening to the Ipsos Mori Politics and Society podcast. My name is Kira Pedley. Um, on this week's episode, we're going to be taking a deep dive look at the upcoming presidential election in the US. Even though this podcast is primarily aimed at a British audience, I don't think you have to look too far to realise that there's an election over in the States at the moment. President Trump facing former Vice President Joe Biden at the beginning of November. Um, we're going to be taking a deep dive look at the numbers today and trying to make sense of it all. Um, and to do that, I've been joined by my colleague in the US, uh, Chris Jackson, who's vice president in the uh, Ipsos US uh, public affairs uh, team over there, who's responsible for um, a lot of the very excellent work that the Ipsos team there are producing, many, many polls uh, and, other, and other work, such as the US Political Atlas. So do check that out if you get a moment. I was also joined by a returning guest uh, to the Polling Matters side of this podcast, Ariel Edwards-Levy, who <laughs> one of my colleagues uh, sort of somewhat hilariously referred to as the pun lady from Twitter, um, which I think if you follow Ariel, you'll know what I mean. Um, so plenty of uh, puns coming from her on a daily basis, but she's also the senior reporter and uh, polling editor at the Huffington Post as well, so very much an expert uh, on the numbers. So I was delighted to be joined by Chris and Ariel uh, to get their take on the election. And here is that conversation. So I'm here with Ariel Edwards-Levy and Chris Jackson. Um, welcome to you both. Gosh, I mean, I suppose it's one of those podcasts where I just don't know where to start, really. There's been so much going on in the last week. Um, maybe I'll come to both of you first uh, initially and just get your snap reactions to the last seven days, if that's even possible. Um, Ariel, come to you first. I mean, what, what stood out for you in the last week? This week to me seems like sort of the epitome of the trend that we've seen throughout this entire election, which is a really outsized um, share of events and news and things happening and usually sort of an undersized reaction in terms of how much that ends up changing what we see in the polls. So we've seen just this incredible, you know, news week. And, you know, what we've seen is that it's, you know, been some degree of bad for President Trump, which is turning it for him, given that he was already sort of in the hole to begin with. But, you know, I think we'll see over the next couple of weeks exactly how much this changed and the, the underlying dynamics of the race. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I would yeah. agree. This has uh, been a just absolutely insane election year. Uh, and the the last week, starting from the New York Times story about Trump's taxes through the debate, Trump's COVID diagnosis, and then last night's vice presidential debate uh, is just sort of a microcosm of it. And like Ariel said, it just hasn't really moved the polls in a real large measure. Biden's got a little bit bigger of a lead now than he did a, a week ago, but it's not a huge difference. Um, and the thing I'm most struck by is just how robust President Trump's base is. He still has somewhere between 40 and 45 percent of Americans approving of his job performance. And and, he, and and that puts him at a bit of a weird position because he's not as low as incumbent presidents who've lost re-election, but he's not quite as good as the presidents who've won. So we're, we're really in a little bit of uncharted territory. So let, let's take as a given then, we, we both kind of alluded to the fact that um, Joe Biden's ahead in the polls. Obviously, we can discuss to what extent we think he's ahead. Um, but before we do that, I mean, what's what's driving that aerial? I mean, do we know who it is that's sort of driving his lead? What it is that's causing it? 
I mean, I think one of the things that we've seen recently is the suggestion that, you know, um, Donald Trump is he had a fair he has a very strong base of people who are absolutely his supporters are not going to move. But that was always, you know, not the majority of the country. And now we've seen, I think, that whittled down since the 2016 election. You know, you've seen him having more trouble with older voters that he than he did in the previous cycle, which is concerning for him, given that these are also, you know, some of the most reliable voters. Um, we've seen the sort of gender splits, you know, continue to um, be a huge presence here in which he's really struggling to make inroads with female voters. Um, you know, if you look at a lot of sort of that, the sort of in-between voters who pushed him over the edge in 2016, he just doesn't have quite as much support as he did that last time around. And given that he won the election, you know, closely in a couple of states, that right now looks like a problem for him. I mean, Chris, I'll come to you. I mean, I've seen some eye-watering horse race numbers um, in, the, in the past few days. I mean, I think we, we've got them in, over with you guys at plus 12, but we had bigger leads than that as well. I mean, how how seriously do we take these polls that show the horse race at more than 10 points? As, as an outsider, that really... I'm taken aback by that, given everything we know about how partisan the U.S. can be. Uh, so, I mean, I think the thing to keep in mind is that most of these polls are, even the ones showing big margins, are still showing Trump getting somewhere around 40 percent of the vote, 40, 45 percent of the vote, which is right where his approval rating is. You know, the the big question mark has been can biden consolidate all of those people who don't approve of president trump's job performance um and some of these late polls that have come out recently i think particularly the cnn poll that came out that showed a a plus 15 for biden um have shown biden doing much much better among independents and among sort of the people who weren't necessarily in, in trump's camp in the first place and i think to just elaborate on what Ariel was just saying a little bit, the key difference for Biden has been his performance with white voters. Um, you know, there's a lot of conversation about sort of the the end of the white majority in American society and how we're an increasingly multi-ethnic society. But the truth is uh, white voters still make up about something close to 70 percent of the electorate. And Hillary Clinton lost them by a pretty sizable margin in 2016 and the polling sort of the average of all the polling now suggests Biden's still losing white voters to Trump, but he's losing them by just very small single digits. And that's a huge difference considering he's still racking up big, big totals with minority voters. So when you take those two things together, it's, it's Trump losing ground with white voters, particularly white women, as Ariel was saying, that's led to the different circumstance we're in now. And one of the um, one of the sort of more nerdy, I don't know if nerdy is the right word, but we'll call it that. One of the more nerdy polling points that I've been asked about from listeners, um, well, it's not really a question. Marcus has just said, partisan non-response bias, please, um, exclamation mark. Um, Ariel, I mean, for the, for the listeners who maybe are less familiar with that term, um, could you talk a little bit about what it means and uh, why it might be relevant to the polls that we're seeing? Sure. So partisan non-response or a differential non-response is basically this um, phenomenon that you sometimes will see in polling taken in sort of the wake of, you know, some event that is noticeably better for one side or the other. You know, 
some sort of major news event that's, you know, bad for one party after some of the conventions, although we've seen that less in recent years. And what happens is that you can see these temporary periods where one um, side of the aisle is more or less sort of fired up, enthusiastic, happy about what's going on. And that translates into how willing they are to answer polls. So it's not like the shy Trump voter theory. It's not that anybody's lying. It's just that it's a little easier for this period of time to get one side or the other on the phone or however you're um, conducting your survey. And if you don't correct for that, that can, you know, make it sort of overemphasize the trend and make it look like something had a little bit more of an effect than it did. Um, one reason, one place that we think we might have seen this is in uh, 2012, um, when you saw that the Obama campaign numbers um, looked a lot smoother than some of the public polling that was coming out showing, you know, a couple of bumps for him. Um, you know, so that's something that you would look at that, you know, some polls are going to be controlling for that in terms of if they're waiting on something like, you know, 2016 vote in a panel survey, or if there are a couple of surveys that will look at, you know, party ID composition compared to some of the last couple of polls they did and make sure that's not getting thrown wildly out of whack. Um, you know, I think we've seen some signs that in some polls that it's part of what is happening. You know, um, I know there were some pollsters mentioning that it was a little harder to get, um, you know, some older Republicans on the phone um, after um, President Trump's COVID diagnosis. At the same time, we've also seen that, you know, even within, you know, even to, even once you take that out of the equation, um, Trump's numbers were still going down a bit. So, you know, I don't know if this, you know, expansion of Biden's lead in the polls is temporary or not, but I don't think it's entirely um, a partisan non-response phenomenon. Yeah, and the big name phone polls, the CNNs and the Wall Street Journal, NBC's the world, don't generally as a rule control for the party ID composition. So they, they're more likely to sort of see a little bit of that of that bouncing around as a non-response bias. Um, but some of the other polls that have come out lately uh, haven't really shown any substantial difference in the party ID composition. So there's a Quinnipiac poll that came out in Pennsylvania showing Biden up by double digits, but the party ID split in that poll was essentially the same as their last one that had Biden up only by low single digits. So so it's not necessarily just a non-response bias driving this. There is, I think, a little bit of actual movement too. And if you're a listener to this podcast who maybe is following the polls, but not necessarily a professional pollster, I mean, is there a correct answer that we should be looking for in terms of party ID? I mean, do we know what the balance of Democrats and Republicans and independents should be? No, I mean, party ID is a, it's a, it's a self-described value. People can change their mind on it, and they do. Um, so there's no hard truth of what party ID is, but it is a useful proxy in polls over time to see if they have a relatively consistent population that they're talking about, right? If you have one pollster that produces a poll with a, you know, even number of Republicans and Democrats, and then their next poll has, you know, a plus 10 margin for Democrats, you will probably see a plus 10 margin on a lot of their other measures too. Sure. I think what Chris said is exactly right. And like, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of, you know, going through every poll that's released and looking at the, you know, party numbers and trying to say, okay, do we need to like unskew this? Is this perfectly right? Especially when you're getting into things like, likely voter models and trying to predict who's going to turn out. But, you know, 
you do want to watch for that sort of level of consistency where if there is an abrupt change in the party ID makeup of a survey, that is probably going to have some bearing on the results that you're going to see because in our current system, um, that's so inextricably tied to people's um, answers and a lot of questions. And I think for, mm. for the benefit of listeners, I should say that a lot of the times that party ID is asked, it's, it's not just a binary, are you a Democrat or a Republican? It's are you a strong Democrat or do you... Uh, do you lean Democrat and that sort of thing? I suppose if you're thinking about party ID, someone can lean Democrat one day and maybe lean Republican or, or Independent three days later, depending on how engaged they are in politics or what they think about the campaign. So it's not necessarily a sort of black and white, you're one or the other and therefore it should be fixed, I would have thought. Yeah, that's actually a relatively rare phenomenon. A lot of research has shown that people who identify as Independent, but then when you ask a follow-up lean or push to Democrat or Republican, oftentimes actually have more consistently Democratic or Republican positions than someone who would identify as like a moderate on either mm -hmm. side. Um, the, the, the key difference is that there are people who also typically have low levels of trust for the parties themselves. They're sort of anti-institutionalists. Um, but I think that's actually the one of the key differences, right, is you have a bunch of polls that are released that don't push independence. So you have 30, 40% of your sample identifying as independents, but the truth is two thirds of those are people who probably lean Democrat or lean Republican. And then you have other polls who push and then report that number and end up with 10, 15% independents. Um, and you, know, you, you can see relatively different party ID composition numbers just depending on which approach the pollster is using. So I want to talk a little bit about, um, we, we, I think we've all agreed uh, Trump, Donald Trump is, is losing, President Trump is losing at the moment, but obviously there's uh, still just slightly less than four weeks, but there's still a few weeks left to go in the campaign. So um, let's take the view that nothing is done until it's done. Um, let's talk about how he turns things around then. Um, one of the questions we've got um, from a listener called Harry um, says, a poll published today, I think this was yesterday, uh, or, the, or the day before, suggested a 7% swing to Biden compared to 2016. Um, and then I'll, I'll paraphrase, a swing that would basically see South Carolina be too close to call. Um, so he says, do you think that this election will generate that much of a swing or is there a shy Republican voter uh, out there or being shown? So I suppose my angle on this is uh, in terms of how Trump turns things around. I mean, is there any evidence of this shy Trump phenomenon? It's something that I see below the line an awful lot when I'm tweeting out polls. Oh, well, you know, people don't want to admit they'll vote Trump. I mean, that, that could be one way he turns things around. I mean, what, what do you think, Ariel? Um, so the shy Trump voter thing is something that I've spent um, a bit of time looking into this year and, you know, looking into research that other people have done, which there's been quite a bit in the wake of 2016. And it's one of these theories that I think is very sort of compelling sounding, but that doesn't tend to be supported by a tremendous deal of actual evidence. And, you know, to some extent, you're trying to prove a negative, but we do know that if this was a phenomenon, and the idea here is basically that there are voters who support President Trump, but don't want to tell that to a pollster, so they will lie about their support for him. And there have been a number of tests to look at whether that this is, you know, a significant phenomenon. And most of them are basically just coming up with nothing where you would expect to see evidence. And to go through some of those tests really quickly, one thing that you would expect to see if people are feeling socially pressured to say that they don't support Trump is that he would do better 
in online surveys than in live caller surveys where you're talking to somebody. That didn't seem to be the case in 2016. There have been some experiments that suggest that's still not a major factor. You would expect Trump to have outperformed his own polls in uh, 2016 more than other Republican candidates did, because we know this is not a systemic problem. Polls have been off in both directions. Um, that didn't happen. There's been um, there was one experiment where there's this you know t a survey technique called the unmatched count, which is a little difficult to explain concisely, but basically. You give people a list of statements and you say, okay, don't tell me which of these you, you agree with, just count them all up that you agree with and tell me the number. And you put a controversial statement on there and half of the survey is not the other half. And you can sort of do a little bit of math and find out how many people are agreeing with that statement without making them say it. So that's something that can be used to test whether people are agreeing with the controversial statement. Um, somebody tried that with, I support Donald Trump. Again, no sign that this was a thing. So. You know, I think that there are scenarios to look at for how um, Trump might pull this off. One of them is um, some sort of polling error that we're not catching at this point. One is um, some sort of major shift in the race. And one is just, you know, another late break like we saw in 2016. Although we're in a situation where there are fewer undecideds and fewer people supporting a third party candidate, which I think makes that a little less likely. But the shy Trump thing, if the polls are wrong and, you know, obviously I, it's hard to predict how things could go wrong when ahead of time. But shy, the, try, the shy Trump thing has never struck me as the sort of biggest concern for how the polls could fail this time around or how they did last time, for that matter. Yeah, the shy Trump poll takers like one of these zombie theories that despite being yeah. killed over and over again keeps coming back and i think it's because like ariel said it, it provides a easy neat way for people who disagree with the findings of the poll to discredit it right because people are ex right now ex have extremely strong pressures to sort of have their have the world match their view of the world so so they come up with rationalizations to discard anything that disagrees with them um, you know, I, I think honestly, I think President Trump's COVID diagnosis has really sort of damaged his chances because what he needed to do to have a better shot was to find a way to switch the conversation in the country back to the economy uh, and the economic recovery, which was stronger terrain for him, and essentially have Americans be less scared of the coronavirus um, because his handling of the coronavirus is not. He, he does not get good marks for that. Uh, but the the uh, his diagnosis, now the news that the next presidential debate would have been done virtually, and then he's saying that he won't attend, uh, is essentially just going to keep the focus on coronavirus. And that's not even to mention how we're seeing a, a big surge in cases in, in the Midwest right now. Um, as long as that's the case, Trump is going to have a very hard time winning the election. Um, I do think, think, though, there is one measurement issue that I think, you know, people should just sort of be aware of. And it's not a shy Trump voter. It's not the idea that people get into the surveys and then lie about their opinion. It's actually the idea that there may be groups of people who just don't answer surveys, period. And if you think of sort of the quintessential Trump voter, right, as sort of a white middle-aged man 
maybe less than a bachelor's degree who has a very high level of distrust in the government, high level of distrust in institutions, it's pretty easy to see a scenario where those people don't answer the phone, don't answer emails, don't answer any of the ways we approach people to do surveys. Um, that being said, again, there's been some studies looking at that and there's not, there's not been anything conclusive, but if there is going to be a polling error, it's probably more in that space than people out and out lying. But the truth is that could happen either way. We could also be seeing African-Americans who don't answer the phone, who that we're missing in our surveys, right? So that could just be a survey sample error. Um, the one thing that we've been doing is looking at 2016 and the polls in the Midwest are about five points off, um, all things equal uh, in those Midwestern states. So we've been looking and seeing, are the polls showing Biden more than five points ahead if so, that's greater than the error that we saw in 2016. And, and at the moment he is, but again, that could change. It could tighten back up, but that's the thing that we're sort of looking for. Um, and honestly, when people think about polling, it's just important to keep in mind that even though we release numbers that are you know, 48, 46, 49, 47, whatever, those numbers, those point estimates aren't really what the poll's telling us. The poll's actually telling us a range of values. And a lot of times those ranges will overlap. Um, and people's fixation on the idea of a margin of error and saying, you know, plus or minus three percentage points, I think obscures the reality that polls are not the precision instruments that are oftentimes described as. And whenever we're talking about polling, we really need to be much, much more upfront about the idea that we don't know who's winning in these really close polls. Now, plus 12 margin at the national level, we probably know who's winning there, right? But if we're seeing a plus three, plus four margin in the states, that's a toss-up. That's still a toss-up. That's such an important point um, about, you know, you see if you see something where one candidate is, you know, one or two points um, above another candidate in a poll, that's not telling you that candidate is ahead. That's telling you this is a really close race. Yes, I remember seeing journalists uh, tweet out some of our polls uh, a couple of years ago when we had party x one point ahead and they'd say things like you know labor take the lead or something like that and it was always very uh you always had to sort of tweet very carefully uh in response as to what the poll was actually saying um there was a topic i was going to talk about later i want to come on to the, the swing states but before i do actually i want to bring one of the topics i was going to talk about later forward which is around turnout because this is obviously the perennial um uh, sort of uh, thing that keeps pollsters awake at night, or one of them at least. Um, and I suppose, uh, to, related to your point, maybe not exactly the same point, Chris, um, we'd be talking about who, who takes surveys. I mean, turnout in this election, or any election, um, is going to be a really difficult thing to model or to, to predict. Um, and particularly, you'd imagine, in, in sort of COVID times where there's many more people voting by mail and so on. So I just wondered, I mean, is there a, a turnout issue that's, that, that's something to watch? Do we know anything um, about how that might change this time and who it might benefit? Or, or are we just ultimately relying on um, having a representative poll and, and, and stated turnout you know, being accurate? I mean, you have to start with a representative poll. Uh, you, you, you can't, <laughs> no turnout model in the world is going to help you if your poll is not not starting from a good place. Um, but what we've been doing and what we've actually seen a lot of other people doing is we're sort of publishing a number of different estimates that show different scenarios, right? Because we don't necessarily know exactly who's going to turn out and that can have an impact on the results. Now, what we're seeing right now is that under virtually every turnout scenario, 
realistic turnout scenario, Biden continues to lead and continues to lead by a relatively high number. But, you know, the margin, like in our most recent poll that we released over the weekend, uh, or sorry, uh, Tuesday that had Biden up 12, uh, you know, depending on the specific turnout scenario, that could be as low as Biden plus seven and as high as Biden plus 15. Um, you know, depending on exactly who shows up to vote. And that, I think, again, speaks to the reality that these polls are not actually precision, the precision instruments they're often made to be, and that they're built on some assumptions. And we're sort of trying to use the ones that we think are the most realistic, but, you know, we're not fortune tellers. We can't necessarily mm-hmm. predict the future with absolute certainty. So things can and, and, and may, in fact, change. And in fact, that's what happened in 2016. Uh, a lot of our projections of who was going to be in the electorate were were incorrect, and we didn't we didn't account for that totally, and that contributed to some of the error we saw. I mean, Ariel, what do you think about the, the turnout question? I mean, is that something we should be more worried about in this election, or is it just one of those things that pollsters just just generally have to worry about, and it's no more no more an issue this time than maybe others? This is probably not a very satisfying answer to that question, but I've always sort of thought that the sort of meta uncertainty of this election is that it's sort of hard to tell how uncertain we should be in some ways. Um, You know, when you're looking at um, reasons that you might be more or less certain this time on things like turnout than in past elections, on the one hand, yeah, I mean, we're in a pandemic. People are voting very differently than they did in past cycles. And I think that inherently you know, add some uncertainty in terms of exactly who's going to turn out slash mail in a ballot slash go to an early voting location slash go to a ballot drop box. And that does add sort of an extra wrinkle in terms of figuring out who is actually going to cast a vote. On the other hand, that does also mean that probably you're seeing a lot of the vote get locked down considerably before election day which in terms of something like we saw in 2016, where a lot of people decided right at the last minute and that broke very hard in one direction, um, there's sort of a little bit of a check against something like that happening to the same degree if most pe- many people have already sort of started voting. Although again, the people waiting to the last minute could also be the most undecided people. So, you know, it's hard to say exactly mm. how that plays out, but I think there's always a certain amount of uncertainty about figuring out what exactly a likely electorate is going to look like. And I don't think it's easier, certainly, this year than it generally is. So we've got about five minutes left. So I want to finish off with a couple of uh, listener questions. But also, before we get there, um, obviously, I know um, I've seen that the polling in, in particular states, but I was just wanted to get the impressions from both of you of which states you were, you were watching particularly closely as we head towards Election Day and maybe... I mean, they may be very well be the same states, but which which ones you're watching on election night? Um, I'll come to you, Chris, first. I mean, wh- which states do you think you're watching particularly closely in this election? Well, I think the first thing everyone should keep in mind is that we don't know if we're going to know the winner on election night. Um, with half of the ballots potentially being cast before election day, and a lot of rules about when those ballots can be counted. It may be a day or several days before we actually have all the votes totaled. Um, And what we typically see is that 
the votes that are cast in person on election day tend to be counted up more quickly than absentee ballots. So uh, it's quite possible that we see something that's referred to as the blue shift, which is essentially that Democrats tend to get more absentee ballots and Republicans tend to get more in person on the day vote. So Trump may have an advantage on election day and then Biden actually take the lead based on counting up to absentee ballots uh, after, you know, after polls close late in the evening, the next morning, the next day. Um, and in fact, that phenomenon is fundamentally why we've seen Trump uh, essentially trying to allege that mail ballot is, is rife with fraud, which is not true. There's very almost no cases of, of actual mail based election fraud. Uh, the one case there is somewhat confirmed case from recent memory was actually a Republican who was conducting it. And Trump never really mentions that. Um, but uh, I think the states that I'm going to be sort of watching will be Florida and North Carolina. Uh, right now, they're both toss ups. They're both too close to call. And if Trump doesn't win both of those, he doesn't really have a clear path to winning the election. Um, so, you know, if, if, if by the end of election night, Biden is up in either of those states, I think that's sort of a signal to us that, that Trump's in for a rough night. But I also think people should not expect to know, and I just want to reiterate that people should not expect to know what actually happened on election nights, unless it's just an absolute wipeout. Um, Ariel, which states are you watching? So my sort of personal perspective on this is that I have, I'm probably less in the trenches on a lot of the actual sort of horse race polling than I think a lot of people are. Um, so I probably spend a little bit more time. I know everybody likes to trash the concept of national polls because we don't have a national election, but I find it interesting to keep an eye on sort of what people's views are of the race and the sort of political environment generally. So. I don't know that I'm following states quite as closely as I think some people are. Um, I do think that, you know, the states that have been mentioned, states like Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Ohio, you know, if those end up leaning um, one way or the other, that's going to be a pretty good indication if Biden, you know, ends up winning those or being, you know, ahead of those on election day, that that's sort of, he's on track for a pretty good night. Um, Failing that, we, I'm always, you know, I think everybody's still looking at the three, you know, some of the states that were um, critical in the last cycle, you know, the sort of blue wall that um, Trump ended up winning. And there's always sort of the danger of fighting the last battle. But obviously, I think there's a lot of attention that's going to be uh, given to, you know, states like, you know, Wisconsin, um, Pennsylvania, Minnesota. Mm. So the final question I have, uh, which I'm calling an in, in quotes fun one to finish with, um, is what's more likely, a Trump win or a Biden landslide, and why? And this is not, listeners, a prediction that one of the two things is going to happen. I'm just curious as to what our guests think the most likely of those two outcomes is. But before I get there, um, quick one uh, for, for you, Chris. Um, a listener called Tony has asked us, uh, has said the Democrats just made a huge media buy in Texas. Do they have a realistic chance of winning there? So I suppose uh, two questions simultaneously for you, Chris, to wrap up. Um, do you think the Democrats have a chance in Texas? And then, and then that, that final question about which do you think is more likely, a Trump win or a Biden landslide? I mean, I, 
I think the odds are not in Democrats' favor to win Texas, uh, of Biden to win Texas. Um, it's certainly been trending towards Democrats in the 2018 Senate race. Uh, Beto O'Rourke came within you know, low single digits of Ted Cruz. Um, uh, Biden's campaign manager is actually from Texas, so she's, you know, got some some local affinity to that. But I think, you know, Biden has had a huge fundraising haul lately. The campaign sort of has more money than they know what to do with. And I'm actually reading Biden's big ad buy in Texas, not necessarily about them trying to win the state at the presidential level, but as a way to sort of help support all the down ballot Democrats uh, who are running for office. And remember, Texas is a huge state. Uh, you know, it's a big congressional delegation. Uh, the state legislature has a lot of power um, there. So, you know, Biden spending this money can sort of help Democrats pick up some seats down the ballot. And that, at the end of the day, will will help the Democrats if they do, you know, take a majority. Um, but, you know, I would say that that Biden's odds of, of winning Texas are you know, at best one in four, and you know, maybe not even that. And then on the final question for you, Chris, uh, which do you think is more likely, a Trump win or a Biden landslide? And why do you think that? Uh, you know, the start of last week, a uh, week and a half ago, I would have said a, a, a Trump win is probably more likely than a Biden landslide. But given sort of what we've seen over the past week and a half, and I think particularly with what I mentioned earlier about how this election really looks like it's going to be about COVID for the next four weeks, um, I, I would say that I think maybe a, a Biden landslide might be a little bit more likely to happen now than, than a Trump win. But I, th I still think probably the most likely scenario is is a a narrow Biden victory. But this election, I think, will remain close and will remain somewhat uh, chaotic up through up through the day. And then final word to you, Ariel. Obviously, if you have any thoughts on Texas, feel free. Um, but the final question being, uh, what's more likely, a Trump win or a Biden landslide? I think it's always a little bit of a fool's game to try to predict which way the polling error is going to go, because... If we knew that, then obviously we could correct ahead of time. Uh, given where the polls are right at this moment, I would say that if every single person in the U.S. were going to vote today, possibly I would give a little bit more weight to the landslide scenario. But given that we do still have a couple of weeks to go and one shudders to think what's going to happen in um the remaining time during this election <laughs> i'm just gonna say who knows absolutely yeah, fair enough um who knows is the most honest answer anyone has given to anything this year i think absolutely <laughs> I, i've been there in the last six months um ariel edwards levy and chris jackson thank you so much for your time pleasure thank you that was the Ipsos Mori Politics and Society podcast. If you like what you hear, why not subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or give us a like or a positive comment too. Or why not just tell a friend about us? Anything you can do to get the podcast out there is very much appreciated. But for now, a big thanks to my guests, Chris Jackson and Ariel Edwards-Levy, and have a good week.